My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome to another day going through the Word of God and continuing our journey through the book of Matthew today. And uh, we're in the middle right now of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus' greatest sermon. It's the very first sermon he ever preached. It's the first sermon we have any record of. And he's preached the Sermon on the Mount and he is equipping all his disciples. Now, when we talk about disciples at this time, we're not talking about the twelve. Uh, because they've only kind of half been chosen so far. He's talking about anybody who's decided to follow him, listen to what he's saying, and then wants to put what he's saying into practice. And that's who he's calling disciples. Now, we know that those numbers are going to dwindle away because there, there was never really a lot of true disciples. In other words, disciplined followers. There are a lot of followers of Jesus. That's what all the multitudes were. They were always following him everywhere. And they loved following him until he challenged them. See, uh, one of the things that I've found in life is that people love to be encouraged. They love to be equipped. They love to be inspired. Not everybody likes the challenge. In fact, most people don't like the challenge. But living a life for Christ is about receiving the challenge of the Word of God every day. And uh, Jesus found that out, and we find that out. And uh, so that's what we're doing. We're diving into that today. Again, if you've not had a chance to subscribe to my YouTube channel, that's where all the playlists are. You can also find all these on the podcast as well. And if you're listening to this, welcome. If you're watching, welcome. I'm so glad you're joining me. Let's get into Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. The word charitable deeds here is the same word used for righteousness, making yourself right with God. Jesus tells us not to do righteous things, things that are right, uh, for the sake of displaying them to other people in order to be seen by them. David Guzik says this, Jesus has just clearly shown God's righteous standard in the, in the previous chapter. Perhaps he anticipated the thought, wouldn't everybody impressed if I was like that? So here Jesus addressed the danger of cultivating and cultivating an image of righteousness. It is almost impossible to do spiritual things in front of others without thinking what their opinion is of us as we do those things and how they are thinking better or worse of us as we do what we do. Now, this is not in contradiction to when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, let your light so shine before men. Uh, Christians are supposed to be seen doing good works, but they shouldn't be doing good works simply to be seen. Otherwise, you end up having no reward from your Father in heaven. And the idea is that when we do righteous deeds for the attention and, and uh, of, of people around us, and we do it for their applause, if you like, or reward even, uh, it's better to receive a reward later on from your Father in heaven than it is to get it from them now. And Jesus' point is clear. God cares about how we do our good works and with what motive we actually do them. Jesus then, after making this statement about motivation, goes on to talk about the three spiritual disciplines that are so important in a disciple's life. Remember, he's trying to teach them, I know you want to follow me, but here's how to be a disciple. Giving, prayer, and fasting. This is what he's about to talk about right now. So let's go to verse 2, Matthew 6. Therefore, 
When you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand, left hand, this know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable de- deed may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Uh, it was customary in Jesus' day, no doubt the same as it is today, for people to draw attention to their giving so that they could be labeled as generous. People that, you know, like, oh, I want you to know what I did. So you can think that I'm generous. Um, there wasn't any idea that, uh, the, uh, um, people, you know, he talks about, you know, don't be like the hypocrites do in the synagogues, you know, blowing their trumpet. There, there wasn't like people were going around blowing a trumpet. He's u- using a kind of metaphor there saying, don't go around telling everybody what you're doing. Um, the idea of doing something that's good for others was very established in Jewish culture. William Barclay, to give alms and to be righteous were one and the same thing. To give alms was to gain merit in the sight of God and was even to win atonement and forgiveness for past sins. So that was the kind of culture they were used to living in. Jesus says, no, we don't do that. Uh, and anybody who does do that is a hypocrite because they're actors. They're basically just putting it on. They're acting the part of being pious, holy people when they're actually really not. And it's, it's not having a standard that makes somebody a hypocrite. It's falsely claiming to live by that standard when you actually don't. That's what makes you a hypocrite. Uh, or when you have a double standard. You do one thing that's good in front of others, but then behind closed doors, you're doing something bad. Now, the word hypocrite uh, is an older Greek word. Hypocrites is, uh, was, was a plural um, it, it, to us. But hypocrites was an actor. That's what, that's what the name meant. Uh, but by the time the first century rolls around, when Jesus is around, D.A. Carson says that this term came to be used for those who play roles and see the world as their stage. And Jesus tells the one who gives so he can hear the applause of others, you should really make sure you enjoy that applause because that's all the reward you're going to get. Okay, there's nothing more coming. There's no reward for you in heaven. Uh, you've got your, you, you had a motive to get an earthly reward. You got it. That's it. It's done. And it's all they will receive. William Barclay. It would be better to translate this. They have received payment in full. The word that is used in the Greek is the verb apocane, which was the technical business and commercial word, word for receiving payment in full. Uh, instead, our giving is to be if you like, even hidden from ourselves, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. I can get my left and right mixed up. Uh, so it's almost to be almost, you know, obviously we can't be ignorant about our own giving, but we can deny ourselves the uh, uh, self-congratulation, pat on the back. Oh, good job. You are a champion. Spurgeon said this, Keep the thing so secret that even you yourself are hardly aware that you are doing anything at all praiseworthy. Let God be present and you will have enough of an audience. (laughs) Jesus then says that your charitable deed may be in secret. If someone finds out that we have given something or done something, does that mean we now lose our reward? The issue is all about motive. If we give for our own glory, it doesn't matter whether people find out or not. We will have no reward from God. Why? Because God is always watching. But if we give 
for God's glory, then it doesn't matter whose finds out because our reward will remain because you have done it for the right motive. Jesus points out the great value of doing good deeds for God. It's better to receive our return from God later on because he's going to reward you much more generously than what humans will uh, when you do it in front of them. God does see in secret, and that's something that Adam Clark says we should be very careful to remember. We should ever remember that the eye of the Lord is upon us and that he sees not only the act, but also every motive that led to it. See, God knows you can't fool God. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. Uh, but don't miss, don't miss the strength here of what the promise of Jesus is, that the things that are done in the right way will certainly be rewarded. You, you can be sure of that even when it doesn't feel like it because so often you do a good deed, you do something right uh, or that you think is right and, and you receive nothing, you hear nothing, there's no applause, there's no thank you, there's no... Can I tell you, God's always watching. So it doesn't matter whether you get a card or an email or a post-it note left on your car. It makes no difference. You did it before God and he will reward you in eternity. And that's pretty awesome. Verse 5. When you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corner streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Jesus assumed that his disciples would give. So he told them the right way to give. He also assumes that disciples will pray, so he wants to teach us the right way to pray so that we don't pray like the hypocrites, like the actors. What, what, what do the actors do? They, 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 they did two main things in Jesus' day. Uh, there were two main places where a Jew in Jesus' day might pray in a hypocritical manner. It could be in the synagogue at the time of public prayer. Uh, on the street at the appointed times of prayer, which was 9 a.m., uh, noon and 3 p.m. So they'd stand outside and, 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 and take a posture of prayer just to show everybody how spiritual they were. Um, whereas if you go to the Wailing Wall right now in Jerusalem and the Western Wall and you see the Jewish people there praying, uh, they're just, it's just them and God. They're not doing it to be seen by any. Their faces against the wall. You can't see them. Their heads covered. And it, it's a very genuine act of, of prayer between them and God. It's very personal. So that's not hypocritical. Uh, the, the people Jesus was talking about were not, not the people who were doing it with the right motives, but the people who were doing it with the wrong motives. And they were prepared, um, Basically, to pray a prayer that wasn't actually for God, it was actually a prayer for men to see their prayer or hear it. Now, I actually think prayers like that are very insulting to God because when we just say words because we're trying to impress other people, then we're using God as a tool to impress others, and and that's just not good. There's nothing positive that can ever come out of that. Jesus says they already have their reward because those seen to be praying by men have their reward and they should enjoy it in full again because that's all they're going to receive. In other words, there's no reward in heaven for those kind of prayers. God's not going to hear those prayers. Waste of time. But go into your room. We should meet God in our room. We should meet God in our closet. The idea is a private place where we can impress nobody except for God, if you like. Not that we're trying to impress God, but he's the only person that's watching. And the specific word for the ancient Greek word here that's used for room 
uh, go into your room was used for a storeroom where treasures were kept. So that's the kind of room that you should go into, a place that stores the treasures of God. That's why the place is important. Jesus didn't prohibit public prayer, but he said prayer should always be directed to God and not men, no matter if you do it in public or you do it in private. Verse 7. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions. In other words, don't say the same thing over and over. God, you're amazing. God, you're amazing. God, you're amazing. God, you are amazing. Did I tell you? You are amazing. That's what vain repetitions are. Okay. As the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Uh, therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Now, this is a very important uh, piece of uh, wording here by Jesus because the right kind of prayer doesn't use vain repetition, um, which is lots of words that have no meaning or, as David Guzik says, all lips and no mind and no heart. <laughs> that's not what it means. Prayer requires, well, that's what vain repetitions are, Prayer requires more of the heart than it does of our tongue. Adam Clark says, The eloquence of prayer consists in the fervency of desire and the simplicity of faith. So we should follow what the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Uh, Spurgeon, Christian prayers are measured by weight, not by length. Many of the most prevailing prayers have been as short as they were strong. The translation of the phrase vain repetitions also has the meaning of keep on babbling, which, which might be an accurate sense of the ancient Greek word batologio or batologio, uh, which, which can be a word that sounds like babbling. It basically has a sense of blah, blah, blah. It's like praying and this is what God's hearing. Blah, 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 blah. But we're like, oh, yeah. That, I love it how ancient Greek is so straightforward. Your father knows the things you have need of before you even ask him. We don't pray to tell God things that he doesn't know. We pray to commune with him, to appeal to a loving God who wants us to bring every need, every worry to him. Adam Clark, prayer is not designed to inform God, but to give man a sight of his own misery, to humble his heart, to excite his desire, to inflame his faith, to animate this hope, to raise his soul from heaven to earth, and to put him in the mind that there is his father, his country, and his inheritance. See, in the following verses, Jesus is about to give us the greatest prayer that we all know, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's, it's a memorable explanation, if you like, of the right way to pray. Because Jesus is about to say, in this manner also pray. Jesus then is about to give the disciples, which includes us, a model for prayer, a model that is marked by close relationship. It's reverence, submission, trust, dependence. It's interesting, Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 2 to 4, has much the same words and content of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so it's it's reasonable to assume that this was not the only time that Jesus taught about the Lord's Prayer. D.A. Carson, in contrast with ostentation prayer of thoughtless prayer or thoughtless prayer, Jesus gives his disciples a model, but it's only a model. This is how, not what, you should pray. 
So this is what he's about to go on and give us the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to break down the Lord's Prayer kind of section by section, line by line. Verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The right kind of prayer comes to God as a Father who is in heaven. And, and it recognizes who we're praying to, that he has a, a privileged title that demonstrates to us that we have a privileged relationship. It's very unusual for Jews of that day to call God Father. It was considered too intimate a term. And it, it, it's no doubt true that God is the creator and the sovereign creator of the entire universe who is so incredibly transcendent and above all that we are and all that we do. Even though he governs and judges all things, but he's also a father, which means he's incredibly imminent to us. He's not just transcendent and transcends above all. He's imminent. He's as close as our father can be to us. And he is our father, but he's our father in heaven. So when we say in heaven, we're remembering God's glory, his holiness. He's our father, but he is our father in heaven. G. Campbell Morgan. This is a prayer focused on community. Jesus said, our father, not my father. The whole prayer is social. The singular pronoun is absent. Man enters the presence of the father and then prays as one of the great family. The right kind of prayer has a passion for God's glory, God's agenda, and his name and his kingdom is going to have the top priority. And we must resist the tendency to protect and promote ourselves first and instead put God's name and kingdom and will first. That's how we have to start. Don't start your prayers with your requests. Start your prayers with a statement of to whom it is you are actually praying. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wants us to pray with the desire that the will of God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in heaven, no disobedience, no obstacles to God wills, God's will. On earth, there is disobedience and, and there appears to be obstacles to God's perfect will being carried out, which is just our free will and emotions that we get to choose. And the citizens of Jesus' kingdom will want to see his free will be done on earth freely as it is in heaven. That's what we, that's what our desire should be. Spurgeon, he that taught us this prayer used it himself in the most unrestricted sense when the bloody sweat stood on his face and all the fear and trembling of a man in anguish were upon him. He did not dispute the decree of the Father, but bowed his head and cried, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Someone can say, Your will be done, in different ways and moods. He can say it with fatalism. He can say it, if you like, with resentment. Spurgeon said this, You will do your will, and there is nothing I can do about it anyway. Your will wins, but I don't like it. Or he may say with a heart of perfect love and trust, God, do your will, because I know that is the best will. Change me where I don't understand and I don't want to accept your will. See, we can 
rightly wonder, I think, why does God want us to pray that his will should be done? In other words, does that mean he can't accomplish his will if I don't pray that? God's more than able to do his will without, with or without our prayer and with or without our cooperation. But he invites us into the participation of our prayers, our heart and our actions in seeing his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. The right kind of prayer brings the right needs to God. This includes daily needs for provision, daily needs for forgiveness, daily needs for strength in the face of temptation. And when Jesus spoke of bread here, he actually meant real bread. He wasn't being allegorical. He was meaning, no, in the sense of the daily things that you need. D.A. Carson, the prayer is for our needs, not our greeds. It is for one day at a time, reflecting the precarious lifestyle of many first century workers who are paid one day at a time and for whom a few days illness could spell tragedy. Could you imagine that? You didn't work that day, you didn't get paid that day. A few days off and now your, your family's in a really horrible situation. Jesus said, pray for bread, the physical needs and what your needs are every day. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Um, Adam Clark says this about this passage. Sin is represented here under the notion of a debt. And as our sins are many, <laughs> they are here called the plural debts. <laughs> um, the important part to remember is that Jesus is introducing us to the concept of not just asking for forgiveness from God, but that there is an equal responsibility for us to forgive others. And Jesus is going to teach on that after the Lord's Prayer. Verse 13, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Temptation means a test. Uh, not always a solicitation to do evil. Uh, God has promised to keep us from any testing that is greater than we can handle. Let's, let's read that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you uh, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, you will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God, while he does not tempt men to do evil, James chapter 1, verse 13, does allow us to pass through periods of, of times of testing and tempting. RT France, but disciples aware of their weakness should not desire such testing or tempting and should pray to be spared exposure to such situations in which they are vulnerable. Spurgeon, the man who prays lead us not into temptation and then goes into it is a liar before God. Lead us not into temptation is shameful profanity when it comes from the lips of men and women who resort to places of amusement whose moral tone is bad. See, if we truly pray, lead us not into temptation, it will be lived out in several ways. It's going to mean never boasting in our own strength, never desiring trials, never going into temptation, never leading others into temptation themselves. Because why we want 
Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. You can't have that unless you've followed this path. The right kind of prayer praises God and credits to him the kingdom and the power and the glory. Now you have to understand this doxology, yours is the kingdom, the second half of verse 13 was a doxology that was already common to Jewish people. They knew what this meant. And then, so they understood what Jesus, Jesus was tying this in to their Jewish roots for them. Understanding, God, yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he goes on, very first statement after giving them the prayer, verse 14. He says this, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, forgiveness is required for those who have been forgiven. We're never going to be given the luxury of holding on to the bitterness that we have towards other people because they've somehow wronged us. Uh, and, and you can't overlook this verse, and I think so many Christians do. They read the Lord's Prayer, and then they forget verse 14 and 15. They're like, yeah, but you don't understand. What this person did to me, I can never forgive them. Well, if those words are really meant in your heart, then you're going to have an eternal problem, my friend. So you need to forgive them and you need to get over yourself. You need to stop holding on to that bitterness because you need to read these verses and understand the truth and the reality of God's word. Jesus has so much to say about forgiveness. He's going to talk about it in Matthew 9, Matthew 18, Luke 17. And here, the emphasis that he's making is on how forgiveness is imperative. It, it is, it's not an option. And I think it's so important, and I want you to get this. I'm saying it as strongly as possible because I know most Christians don't get this because as a pastor, I see it. People want forgiveness from God, but they do not want to forgive others. Why? Because of the severity of what other people have done to them. But if you think about the severity of what you and I have done to God and he forgives us, then those things will just fade away into insignificance. It's the only way. Think about Jesus on the cross, taking the nails, bang, for you, bang, for you. Crown on his head for you, for me. All of a sudden, and, and, and he's forgiving us. Listen, if he can do that for you and for me, then we can forgive anybody that's done the worst of the worst to us. Does it mean forget? No, I don't think we're ever going to forget. I, 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 I've had things in my life that I've had to forgive people from, and I've just wished that God would erase the memory from my mind, but it just hasn't happened. But I do know that God gives me the grace and the mercy to be able to deal with those memories and to be able to manage to move on day by day. And that's my observation. I love the Lord's Prayer because it's a great focus that I'm praying first to God who's in heaven. It's a great focus and reminder of unity. It's our Father, not my Father. Every time I do a wedding, every time I do a funeral, uh, every time I do something where I need to unify people because there's, there's a difference in belief, I know I could pray the Lord's Prayer and it will unify everybody in the room. I know that when you're in a group of people and you don't know what to pray and you pray the Lord's Prayer, I know that it's going to inspire people. But I also know that there are some lines in the Lord's Prayer that we need to get a hold of because we haven't really grasped a hold of them. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let's remember that Jesus came to pay the price for our sins. That's why he came, to restore us back into relationship with our Heavenly Father. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you 
for the truth of your word. Thank you for this most wonderful of prayers, God. Thank you that it can just lift us up, remind us who you are. You're transcendent. You transcend everything, but you're imminent. You're as close to us as an earthly father could be. Thank you, God, that you, the creator of the universe, care about the daily needs that we have. And I pray for everybody right now who's going through a tough time and they have daily needs and they're struggling to meet them. I pray, Lord, provide for them miraculously, supernaturally, instantaneously, according to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day. Thank you.